Welcome back to Search for DOS. In this episode, we meet Jesse Appel. Jesse is an American who performs Chinese language stand-up in China. He's originally from Boston, and he's a graduate of Brandeis University, and his Fulbright scholarship brought him to Beijing, where he studied a type of comedy, which in Chinese is Xiangxiang. Gosh, my Chinese, it's been a while. And in, um, and in English, it's crosstalk. And it's a type of comedy that became famous during the Qing Dynasty. Jesse and I met during college through the student organization called Global China Connection. There were chapters at Brandeis and at Vanderbilt, and we've stayed friends since. I invited Jesse on Search for DOS since, as you'll soon find out, his unique path has put him in situations that few, if any, Americans have encountered. And I want him to share the journey that he's gone on. And given his Jewish roots, I wanted to just figure out how he thinks about comedy, how he thinks about his Jewish roots, and how he utilizes those to do something very hard, which is bring Western style of comedy to the People's Republic of China. And when I look at those efforts, I think of a quote from Eric Severide, who's a CBS war correspondent who became a household name during World War II. Eric is no longer with us. Severide once said, next to power without honor, the most dangerous thing in the world is power without humor. There is no one in the world I know who's making more of an effort to ensure that people in China, especially those in power, understand the important role humor plays in a high-functioning society. When Jesse entered China in 2011, 2012, it was already a hard, hard feat, but it's even gotten harder. So in our conversation, we cover how his nine-day vacation to the States turned into three years where he was locked out of China. The approval process he goes through to perform stand-up shows in China. The differences between what Americans and Chinese consider funny, how the Chinese perceive Jewish people, how his three-year-long exodus from China led him to create a tea company. And then that led to him creating what is now the largest TikTok page dedicated to tea on all of TikTok, the years he spent studying Xiangxiang under a mentorship of a famous master, why the tea district in Beijing should be at the top of your travel list, the reason we in America think about tea all wrong, and how tea drinking might be the solution to our nation's loneliness epidemic, the Chinese word he thinks should make its way into the American lexicon, and a few Chinese jokes that he shares, and it will very much test my translation skills. Jesse has created a discount code for Search for DOS listeners. So if you want to replenish your tea supplies or dive into tea for the first time, visit jessesteahouse.com and use the code search for DOS for 10% at checkout, 10% off at checkout. Now I give you Jesse Appel.
Jesse Appel, welcome to Search for DOS. Thank you. It's good to be here. You, you're, you're, you're the first of many on Search for DOS. You're the first Chinese speaker to join. Well, second if you count. Ah, well, you count. And you are the first comedian. And you are the first person who has their own company that sells tea. So you're just you're just bla blazing trails here. So we're we'll definitely insert a uh, some type of a uh, coupon discount code for um, and we, we don't even we shouldn't even do discount codes. People are going to fall in love with you uh, after this episode and they should just, you know, they're going to want to go in full price. They'll, 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 they'll be buying the subscription. Yeah. If people want, if people want tea, if people want tea, well, we got, we got you, but uh, I guess we'll talk about that later. I assume in the, in the podcast, I don't know what your, your list of questions, how you want to go about it are, but we definitely got the tea. If you want the tea, we got the tea. <laughs> well, there's, there's no agenda here. We're going to, we're going to uh, just smoothly flow through a conversation like a, nice warm cup of uh, Longjing Cha from the Shihu. Love it. And Love it. So you, are, are you Jewish, Jesse? Yes, yes, I'm Jewish. Yes, I am Jewish. Is this a question you ask everybody? I feel like this has this sort of ritual question, like, are you Jewish? And then the real answer was what you do in response. And I'm just realizing I got defensive, which what does that mean? Like, what does that mean about me? Um, I have to prove something to somebody uh, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this this got real deep real fast oh my god Whew. How, how did you how did you prove how did you prove you were jewish when you were in china how did that all go down at it what felt, point did you tell felt people far you were easier it felt far easier to tell people i was jewish in china than here because in china you're in another country so i lived there for nine years i don't know what the what the if there's a preview to this that you're going to be putting on or introduction to what was going on but i lived in china for about nine years um maybe a little longer if you counted all the times i was there on study abroad and stuff and uh when you're when you're living in another country especially like china which is like everybody looks chinese like effectively 100 percent of the people don't look like you people are always asking you where are you from who are you there's a lot of very like existential questions you get asked in normal everyday life um that you need answers for because you're going to have the same question asked 800 times and so one of those had to do with like, you know, where are you? Like, where are you from? Oh, I'm American. Um, but, you know, sometimes people would be like, oh, but like, where was your family from? Like, you know, Americans are from everywhere. Where, like, you know, who are you other than that? Or um, they would assume that I was Christian because all the white people are Christians, right? And then I would have to kind of like back up and be like, oh, I'm not Christian. I'm, I'm Jewish. Although I was educated in the West, so I actually know a lot about Christianity, which is surprising considering that I'm not Christian. But like, I know what you know about, you know, Christianity just from living in America. So um, I'd say it was really like, um, it was, it, and then of course, Chinese people are fascinated about Jews. So I don't know when you want to get into all that, st that shtick, but like, you know, there is, um, whenever I would mention it, it was, it would very rarely just go by the wayside. Yeah. Did you ever get, after the Yotaren, so I am Jewish. Did you ever get anything besides Yotaren Hensongming? 
I also got I got like, you know, Jews are good at business. I got like a uh, like, you know, uh, like yeah, the Jewish, the Jews are strong people or uh, like smart people or whatever. Um, you know, uh, like they're very good at economics or finance or whatever. So like a lot of those same stereotypes, this is my shtick, is that the same stereotypes we have in the West, they have in China. But in China, all the negative stereotypes in the West are positive stereotypes in China. So they're always like, oh, you're Jewish. Like you guys control the media and the banks. Like go get it. Like we, we would if we could. We can't. You did it. Like, you know. Um, and then... And then I have to be like, it's weird because I'm like, you're saying what Hitler said, but you're smiling. Like, what, like, what does that mean? <laughs> and um, it was it was bizarre because it, it made me uncomfortable and I didn't know exactly why. And then I realized what it was, is that I had never had to deal with pro-Semitism before. Um, I just didn't know what it was. No one's ever like, no one's ever like, we like you for the same stupid reasons other people hate you. And I was like, oh, like those are both bad reasons, but I've never had to deal it on the positive end of things before. It's always like just been at best neutral or at worst a problem. No one's ever been like, oh yeah, all that like BS like is good. I'm like, oh, I had to like take a step back. Um, so that that's kind of like my 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 shtick on doing uh <laughs> being being Jewish in China. So I would say that people are people were very curious. But again, they don't know very much because I was probably the first Jew they would meet in real life. So all they had to work off of was media and the media coming out of the West has all those Jewish anti-Semitic tropes in it baked in. And, um, you know, that's kind of what people took out of it. And um, if there was anything other than that, you know, there's I mean, it, it does branch off of that. It's not just like everybody's like crazy you know, stereotypical, whatever. But like, there were a lot of conversations that started that way, as you said. In terms of comedy in China, what percent of your jokes touched on being Jewish? If you had to throw a percentage. I have a whole routine. Well, so I have an English language show about being Jewish in China that I do at like JCCs and stuff. And that show is like an hour. So it's like, I have lots of stuff, but the amount of those jokes I can do for Chinese people are smaller because they don't know very much. But I would say I probably have, um, I did like an hour comedy special recently in New York um, in Chinese for Chinese people in New York. And I would say out of the hour, I probably did seven minutes on being Jewish. Um, but I also realized in doing it in New York is like I could do way more in New York than I could in Beijing because in New York, they actually see Jews like they like I made one joke about the Williamsburg Jews and everybody loved it because they never get to talk about these people. They see them every day, but they don't know any of them and they don't talk about Williamsburg Jews with each other. So to have a Jewish person on there talking about Williamsburg Jews in Chinese. I, I only did one joke, but I sensed I could have done much more if I had cared to. So there's, um, it all has to do with life experience. It's like, if there's not any life experience, then it's, it's hard to do. I listened to a standup you did, I believe it was 2012 at the bookworm and you, um, you, you touch on the freedom you say, the stereotype in America, this is all in Chinese for, for those listening. It, 
it's you said that people in America think that Chinese people have less freedom than they do in America. But let me tell you, there's actually a lot of areas where Chinese people have more freedom. You also do it and then you and you make some jokes about that. You then also do some jokes about marrying. You're saying, oh, I'm, I'm single right now. And when I look to um, date here, you know, she thinks about X, Y and Z. But I know if it's a Chinese man, all she cares about is he rich. And I while I'm listening to these, I'm thinking if 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 Jesse were to give do a stand up tomorrow in Beijing, what percent of this hour stand up or ever along was could you do again now? So this is literally the problem I'm dealing with right now is like of my old jokes, how many of them will get through the new version of the uh, the censorship? So for those who are not up on the current state of the Chinese stand-up industry as of the summer of 2023, there have been major changes recently. So stand-up in China is booming. So stand-up is honestly may even be bigger in China than it is in America now, if you count how many people are actually watching, like hundreds of millions of people are watching and like people follow the stand-ups and um, it's, it's unbelievably clear that I would make a better living as a stand-up in China than in LA where I live right now. Like in LA, like you need to work 10 years to get in front of a hundred person theater and get paid 50 bucks. In China, like people are calling me up to pay like money to see me perform. And like there's, in, in LA, there's tons of people that can do comedy and very few opportunities. And in China, there's almost nobody that can do comedy and the whole country wants to watch. Um, so China is a fantastic place to do comedy from a market perspective and from an audience perspective. Politically, it's hard because over the last 10 years, it wasn't this way when I got there, but over the last 10 years, they've really, every year it's gotten a little bit harder, a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And then kind of culminating in, in May, uh, they had a comedian that got arrested and uh, that uh, they fined 2 million US dollars to his company for doing a joke about the, uh, the police, the Chinese police. And so after waiting all this time to go back and do comedy in China, I couldn't do comedy in China because all the shows canceled themselves after this incident. And they're, they're back on now, except for that one company that got blocked. But, the, um, but like, it was just a bad time for Chinese comedy. So there's this conflict to the whole thing because it, it feels like such a fantastic place to do comedy because people are stressed as hell. They need to laugh. They, they need ways of expressing themselves and seeing people express themselves. And this is a country where like, you can't just air whatever TV show you want. You can't just air whatever movie you want. Uh, you can't just write whatever article you want. So if you want to talk about the world and society, stand up is great. And so I think a lot of that interest that would be filled by other modes of expression are being filled by stand up instead, which makes it even more valuable to society than it would be here in America where you have 10,000 ways of expressing yourself. Um, so part of myself, I really want to get back there and keep doing comedy. On the other hand, you know, in America, if I want to do a comedy show, I just call up the theater, I book the theater, I do my show. In China, you need to go through a process of submitting your scripts and making sure that the scripts are appropriate. Uh, who determines who the scripts are appropriate? That's the first half of the issue, depending on who you're applying to, um, which city, which government, which district, how good is your relationship with those people? It's crazy. So anyway, I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But to answer your original question, let's explore one of the tweets. So give, give me a joke that you did before that you don't think you'd be able to do now. So all my Jew jokes. So unfortunately, you can't talk about religion. 
So if I'm Jewish, this is like a real, this is an interesting question. So in, if that comedian had not gotten banned, I would have submitted the Jewish jokes and I would have said, this is not talking about religion. This is about my life and I am Jewish in the same way you are Han Chinese and you're not saying, talking about religion if you talk about Taoism or Confucianism, I'm not proselytizing. I think you could have made those arguments and I think outside of one of my jokes, which I know would not get passed, um, I think most of my Jew jokes could have worked. Now we're in a sensitive time, so we could submit those jokes, but if they block them, we're not only getting in trouble for not getting the jokes on, we're gonna be, the hammer is bigger than it was a month ago. And if we wait two more, three more months, the hammer will be not as big as it is now. So a lot of this is kind of like gut decisions that you have to make during the process. And it's, um, it's easier if you live in China because the jokes will eventually get through. It's harder here because I have to send in jokes four to six weeks ahead of time, but we also have to be like selling tickets. So like, like, but we don't want to put the show like five months out. So like, it's hard to get this timing up where we get the approval to do the show and then start advertising. It's just kind of like a time-wise, it's a little bit difficult to do from, from the States. But, um, but yeah, so like, these are the things is like, these laws are uh, vaguely written and they're, they're implemented based off of fulfilling their goal of what they want to do and not to the letter of the law. It's not like if you prove, oh no, the law says I can tell the joke and they're like, oh damn it, he got us. Like there's none of that. If they don't want it going on, it's not going on. They can approve it, you can do it live. And then if they don't like it, they'll tell you to stop doing it. So basically the, there's, not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of ability to exert what you want over the system that doesn't mean it's like completely unfree because i you know if you have enough jokes you can choose which jokes you want to do as long as they're not the jokes you can't do um and so this is kind of my big my bigger challenge i'm dealing with right now is like can i fulfill my goal of trying to be a cross-cultural bridge and connect china and the west and do so through laughter under these circumstances which are fairly new again this is kind of the most recent crisis happened in May. So the, yeah, it's tricky. Let, let, let me throw, let, let me throw out a few topics and, and quickly tell me like, yay or nay in terms of being able to make a joke about it. Could you do a joke <clears throat> about, about COVID? Um, you could do a joke where you mentioned COVID happened. I don't think you could do a joke where you made fun of the situation of COVID or as me as an American implied that America dealt with COVID better. But I think like you could mention like, you know, if I was doing a joke where I said like, oh, over the pandemic, I learned how to cook. You could say that because it's a joke about cooking. So you, it's not like you were denying COVID happened. But if you, if, you know, if you made a joke about saying like, you know, you know, I, I have as many friends as people who died in China during COVID, who knows, you know, that joke would not work. <laughs> um, but again, it's like, it's like, it's like part of the thing here is that the system, the system never answers that question because the whole point of the system is to make you never write that joke. And even if you wrote the joke, never submit it. So the system is very rarely blocking jokes. The system doesn't work that way. It doesn't work if people have tons of jokes and then they need to block lots of them. The, the system basically creates a situation like if you are talking about COVID because you want to be a political instigator, you will get no funding from companies. No one will sponsor your show. No one will air your show. It doesn't even matter whether your show exists or not. The final blow of whether it gets blocked is kind of irrelevant. 
you just have no way forward in that media environment if your goal is to be a political instigator. Similarly, if you just want to talk about food, but you do so in a way that's politically instigating, as in like the poor have no food, the rich have lots of food, you might find yourself blocked as well, even though the topic is food. You know, like it depends on how you do everything and why you're doing it. And they're not bound by any, like, they're not bound by like, oh, legally you're allowed to talk about food. Like they can just cancel the show. So practical people who need to make a living for themselves and for their family don't wind up doing politically instigating shows because that's a bad way to make a living for yourself and your family. You kind of need to be like independently wealthy or live abroad and make your money off of the Western market, which loves political instigation in China. So if I wanted to make jokes like that, the market would be Americans who want to hear bad things about China. And there is a market for that. So there's lots of people on YouTube that, that that's their market. <laughs> a few, few more topics. Yeah. Joe Biden, could you make a joke Joe about ben, President Biden? I could, just no one would care. Um, like, they, do, they don't really care who the president is. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know the differences that we, we have politically. It would be, I'm trying to think, if I made a joke about Joe Biden, what could I get away with? Or like, what would people get? I think people would get that he's old. I think I could do an old joke if I made a joke about Joe Biden being old. Um, and then you could do like puns off of his name or something. If you had like a Biden, if you had some sort of like, you know, pun using his names or the characters in his names, people would get that because they know his name. Um, and then you could probably do a joke where like, you know, you know, Biden said, you know, like, you know, Biden said,我今天没有什么事儿. And then you just say it in Chinese. You say Biden says,我今天没有什么事儿. And then you could be like, wow, your Chinese is so good or something like that. You could do like a quote where you were like paraphrasing Biden and then like be like, oh, his Chinese is great. So like you could do those jokes, but they're, I actually, I feel like I deserve a medal for this. I did a series of YouTube videos during the election about the American election for Chinese viewers. Um, I did uh, I did a couple of them and one was on, um, which was like a so total fucking like laser, you know, the trying to steal the gem and you're dodging laser beams left and right. Like, like that's what talking about the American election was like on Chinese internet because like, first of all, you, you can't imply that the democratic system is better than the Chinese system. So the whole core of like, why we're doing the election is not really up for discussion. You can't talk about that. Um, you could maybe say that Americans enjoy the process, but you definitely couldn't do it in a way that implies Chinese people would would enjoy the process also. Um, so there's like so like that times a hundred problems. I did one episode on uh, I did one episode on the president's swag, so the aviators versus the MAGA hat, and what the MAGA hat means and what the aviators meant and why people do they vote based off of a hat do they vote off of glasses like no but the hat and the glasses are a way to show what tribe you belong to and there's tribalism and blah 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 so like that sort of thing i was able to talk about and make some jokes about and i also did a, a series on presidential pets so like what does it mean that joe biden has a dog and his dog is appearing in campaign pictures uh campaign advertisements and trump doesn't have a pet what does that mean? Do people care? Do people not care? Why would you care if the president has a pet? You know, oh, well, people think the way you treat animals is like the way you are as a human being. And in America, where you get elected based off of 
essentially a popularity contest. It doesn't matter if you have governing experience, if people believe you're a good person, some people might think that. You know, these are things that they would never guess. They would never guess you would elect somebody because they drove a truck or they wore a hat, like because it doesn't make any sense to people that haven't lived in America. But you kind of have to go back and explain like, oh yeah, Americans will kind of just like, you know, I want to have a beer with that guy. And that might be a big decision and who they want to lead the country. Um, so like that stuff that I feel, even though it was not politically sensitive in China, I felt it was like good for Chinese people to know, because when you think about it that way, that's like, that's my way of trying to share what democracy is actually practically like. And there's good and there's bad to that. But behind all of it was the sense of like, but these people are making their own choices about who they feel a good leader is. Um, and for me, I felt that was a valuable thing to be able to share, even if I wasn't literally able to say like, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy that there's no election. <laughs> um, did, yeah. did, did you, did you, did at, at any point in time, did you get an outreach from type of authority saying, Hey, careful on that, or we don't like this specific post. So no, because I did that project with a Chinese uh, online media organization. So I had their, their paperwork to, to be the shield. If I had done it myself, I don't think that any of the stuff I said would have been a problem. Um, it just depends on how bad the mistrust is. Like, you know, if you have right now, the biggest problem between the US and China is just mistrust. Like both, like I make that video and the Chinese, if they mistrust me, will think, oh, this guy is a, a, a shill for the State Department trying to sneak in democratic thinking into China. I'm like, no, I'm a dude who wants to make you laugh. But like, if you mistrust me, you'll think that. Similarly, you know, I get people on the internet that think I'm a shill for the, for the Communist Party because when they ask me really pointed political questions, I just tell them, you know, not the answer that you would say if you're like, you know, uh, you know, whatever on whatever party in America, I have different answers than they want to hear. And, um, you know, living in China for 10 years will do that to you. Like, I don't give a lot of the answers about China that, that people expect. And, um, and some people see that as like, oh, you're an apologist or whatever. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I had a moment when I moved back to America, I was like, do I really need to change what I do with my life? Because this is how Americans think of China now. And ultimately, I asked a lot of teachers of mine about this and, and um, the react, the ultimate place I arrived at was, are they right or are they ignorant? And I think they're ignorant. So then the question is, am I going to change the way I live because some people are ignorant? And the answer to that was no. So like, there could be some risk to doing China stuff in America in a country where people don't really know that much about China and might kind of over extrapolate and, and think things about me that aren't true. But ultimately, I know what I'm doing and I know I'm not a shill for the Communist Party. And I also know when the Chinese ask me, I'm not working for the CIA. Like, it's just not true. It doesn't matter if you distrust me. It just isn't true. So the um, so like, you know, what am I going to do? I have to live in reality. And so the reality is like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow their distrust of China to, or vice versa to dictate what I do in my life. So you are stepping back in to the comedy game in China. You, you took a, a bit of a, a bit of, you took a bit of a break because COVID forced you to do that. If I, if I remember correctly, you were coming back for just a week or two. Yeah, I was coming back for COVID, nine days. 
You were coming back for nine days and then COVID kicks off in China in earnest and the borders were closed. Yep. So I came back for what I thought would be a nine day vacation and it turned into three and a half years. So like, um, that it's, that's the reality. It was pretty, it was pretty, at the time it was pretty rough. Even now it's kind of rough because like, um, you know, you be like the whole point of being a comedian and an artist is like, you have some semblance of control over your life in the sense that like, I get to choose what projects I do. I never have to go somewhere because a boss told me blah, blah, blah. And like, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you have no control over your situation. Whatever you thought you did with your life, you live with your parents now for forever. I don't know, as long as you want. And like, you know, you can't go back and do what you did. So the borders were closed. I tried for the first year, very, very hard to get a Chinese visa. It did not happen. The second year, um, the first year it would have been better to be back in China because like China actually kept the COVID cases to zero and they reopened in 2020 for quite a while and my friends were touring. Um, and meanwhile, in America, it was like leading up to the election. I don't know if you remember that, but every day was just stress. It was like there was no way of avoiding it. Like, you know, everybody was like stress, stress. Um, so the um, the in China at the time, the political and economic situation was better in China than America. Then the vaccine came out. The American vaccines were better than the Chinese vaccines. And uh, the result was that America kind of opened up when china kind of kept closed and so and then in 2022 they went like full-blown political crisis mode everybody was getting locked in their house in shanghai it was bad and so at that time i had no desire to be able to go back and so now that COVID is done in china i'm trying to figure out how much of my time should i spend there how much of my time should i spend here and um weirdly enough one of the biggest thing drawing me back to china is the jews the jewish community in beijing is so nice and I have not found anywhere else in the world a community I like as much as the, the Beijing Jewish community. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a great group of people. Is that the Kehilat Beijing? Yeah. Okay. That, that yeah, it's like Kehilat Beijing. Yeah, that's my group. That's great. Those are my people. On the Before we leave the Chinese comedy scene, which you know so well and have pioneered, are, are there... Are there meaningful differences in what they think are funny? And I don't mean like, like, oh, they think a joke on like this food that they know is funny versus like the food we know because they eat that food and we don't. I mean, like meaningful differences. Um, I guess it depends on how you see meaningful. I think that like um, significant differences there. I think that the... Uh, comedy for them is just starting to be a tool of looking at society again. Comedy in America is kind of our way of looking at society without being too academic or serious about it. But like people, like people confuse the daily show with a news show because they get their news from that show because they see comedy is so what a core part of comedy is, is like talking about everything. Um, and in China, that's just starting because, you know, it depends on how far you want to go back, but even back like hundreds or thousands of years, like humor for the purpose of, you know, skewering those in power or talking about society was not as popular as it is in the States. And it's just starting to kind of be something that people realize. It's like, oh, if I want to be a social commentator, I don't have to be a professor. I could be a comedian. Um, 
And that's something that's kind of new. Uh, it's not new to Chinese history. You can find it if you look back and do the scholarly work, which I have. Um, but it definitely is not as pervasive as it is in America. And so I think that that's kind of where this conflict on stand-up is happening right now in China. Is like, is this a thing where you can tell some puns and some some language jokes, and then you can't go past that, or is it really like a lens you can put on society and talk about everything within the context of reality in China politically? And that that's kind of where the fight is right now. Um, is like whether the, like what stand up or what comedy will wind up being there. Um, so I'd say that's kind of a major difference, and then. Other smaller differences, maybe like, you know, you know, like in America, every, like especially going back and doing shows now in L.A., it seems like every joke is about race. It's like it's like if you counted on a, on your hands how many jokes are about race, it would be like half of them in America, maybe half or more. Um, like go go and watch like a whole bunch of comedians and see if there's not a mention of race in in the whole routine. You'll be hard it's hard set to find a comedian that does a whole set and doesn't mention, well, I'm white, I'm black, you know, these people are like this, those people are like that. In China, most people are Han. And even the non-Han people um, don't, uh, there's only so much the Han people know about them, so they can't really do that deep jokes about being not Han. Um, the, you know, white America has more knowledge about other races experience in America than Han Chinese people do of other races in China. But in China, the equivalent that they have is like uh, local, like where you're from, what province you're from. So they have a lot of these same stereotypes or like, oh, people from that province are like this, people from that province are like that, but it's not racial. It's just based off of where you're from. We have that too at the States, like California people make fun of East Coast people and vice versa. And people make fun of Texas or whatever. Um, and so there's like that we have that too, but like, it's not as like, you know, race is like an overwhelming topic in American comedy that it's like really not in Chinese comedy. How about the art form that you studied for a while, which is Xiang Sheng? What are the Xiang Sheng? And then the ink? Xiang Sheng. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. Xiang Sheng. Xiang, like, you know, And it's yeah. English's crosstalk? Yeah. The English name, you could translate it as crosstalk. Um, it's a, it's a two man comedy style. There's a joker and a straight man. They go back and forth and back and forth. They have a pre-prepared funny dialogue, but there's also room for improvisation or if somebody in the audience coughs or whatever, you can play with the audience as well. There's just basically two people talking on stage and being funny. And, um, there's usually the joker and the straight man. Uh, and, uh, I studied that. I, that was actually my first job out of college. I got a Fulbright scholarship to apprentice to a master comedian in China and learn how to do this Chinese comedy style. And um, when the fellowship was over, I was having so much fun. I kept studying with him for what turned out to be seven years until he passed away. Um, and so it was, it was a fantastic experience because that is, you know, if you want to talk about like special comedy that like America doesn't have, like definitely all of the Xiangsheng, all of that crosstalk is like, um, is all very, very Chinesey comedy. If you want to go way back, it's kind of like vaudeville. So like vaudeville, like they had live performers, two guys on stage, you know, whatever, um, you know, who's on first, Abbott and Costello, back and forth, back and forth. They just got, they got bits. They got bits. Did they, did they get inspiration from the Chinese or was it vice versa? 
or did it happen independently? No, they didn't. They, uh, they, as far as I can tell, it's completely independent. The history of Xiangsheng is quite interesting. One of the, um, one of the Qing dynasty emperors died and, and during the mourning period, they forbid any um, Beijing opera from being performed. So what happened is all the Beijing opera performers were out of a job and they all had to hit the street and they basically came up with what they call the 100 minor art forms. Like everybody came up with their own art form that had to be done on the street. And one of those art forms that was created by one of the clowns from Beijing opera, who was a clown from Beijing opera, the stage name was uh, Qiong Bu Pa. Um, I do not fear poverty, which is a weird name for an artist. I do not fear poverty. Um, but um, Chong Bu Pa uh, was a funny guy and he came up with these funny stories. And eventually he figured out that if I have, yeah, if, eventually if he figured out that if I have a second person with me, he can kind of set me up. And um, that he took his first disciple and then that person took a disciple. And then from that one person in the Qing dynasty, we have the complete family tree of every Xiangsheng performer and every master. And um, I'm a member of the eighth generation of Xiangsheng performers. My, my shifu, uh, Ding Guangquan, my master, was a member of the seventh generation. And his teacher, Hou Baolin, was arguably the best Chinese comedian of the last hundred years. Like, you know, even, even today in California, you talk to Chinese people and they know Hou Baolin and they know, um, they know about this guy. So it's, um, it's a, that's also one of the unique things about the Chinese comedy world is that it's it's master to student there's a family tree and um and people really care about that and there's lots of like in jokes about that where like if you're doing a show and you want to like insult another comedian and you know that that comedian's master is having a feud with your master and then but it's like being done through the disciples and people are kind of all dragging each other or making fun of each other's style um it's it's almost like uh, how people who really love basketball, they like they know who was on whose team and then who had a beef and who got traded because they couldn't deal with each other. And like, you know, all that infighting is kind of present in the comedy world in Xiangsheng. And so it makes for some really awesome comedy um, where I can do jokes about. Yeah, I, I so I do jokes you know, like I did a I did a joke in Canada about this because I did a show with Dashan, uh, who the, the listeners of this podcast may not know, but is a. Uh, very famous in China is a Canadian guy who studied um, crosstalk and is known for being a comedian in China. But if you look at who apprenticed to whom, I'm actually a generation above him. Uh, and so he technically should call me uncle, which in China is like a good joke. Like, you know, I have this younger guy who's like not as famous is going up to this like star and then you're being like, you should call me uncle. And then it's like, Jesse, Jesse, uncle, Jesse. Mm, uh, no. And, uh, and then you can you could go on for five minutes fighting on that. So, um, yeah, fun stuff. Are you going to continue the legacy? Are you going to become a sureful to a younger generation? People have asked me that, and I don't, I don't feel like I'm good enough or ready enough to take disciples in formal Xiangsheng. But I, I hope to live a long. But I, I but I. I hope to live a long life and I hope that at one day, maybe I'm good enough or it feels like the right thing to do, but it feels, um, it feels inappropriate now because, you know, my, I call him master ding, you know, he's a master. Cause I call him a master. You don't get, you're not a master cause you passed a test or you're in the family tree. People come to you and they don't leave until you take them as a disciple. And so I haven't had anyone without, with that, with that, uh, 
energy yet. Um, but you know, let's we won't say never say never. <laughs> that there, there there aren't many people that enter a craft where they can say that and it's a it's like a legitimate application that there is when you entered as as disciples. And then yeah, I mean and and uh you know, one of the reasons why Master Ding was so good is he treated his uh, foreign disciples the same way he treated his Chinese disciples. And uh, we really learned, which was which was great. There wasn't like an accelerated course or like a fake, fake version. So it was great. It was great. It was a fantastic experience. I miss him a lot. How old was he when he passed? I think 73 or 74. He had lung cancer because he smoked all his life. But also during the Cultural Revolution for 10 years, his job was with the um, the uh, coal miners cultural work unit. And he was sent to perform comedy for all the coal miners all around China. For a decade, he trooped around Shanxi and did, uh, did shows for coal miners and probably not the best air. Uh, the air in Shanxi is not good today. It was probably really bad in the Cultural Revolution with all that coal being mined. So um, that, that catches up to you eventually. So when's the next trip to China? I'm not sure if my scripts get approved, I may wind up going to do a, a tour in September and October. Um, if they're not approved and slash or we can't get them done in time. I kind of feel like it might be next spring because like I live in LA and I'm like, I'm going to go to Beijing in the winter for, for like, you know, I better have a real good reason. Um, <laughs> like, you know, especially it's nice out here. I feel like it feels horrible to say like, Oh, the weather is like one of the reasons, but like, if, if um, I need to figure out what I'm doing with the comedy there, because it's like on one hand, it would be possible to make money, but in order to make money, I would have to do very cautious stuff. And I'd probably feel worried given the political climate now, either it has to get a little bit better or I just need to be willing to take on that risk. Um, and, you know, and now with my tea company, I'm not in like crazy need to make a little bit of money from doing comedy in China. I have- Let's a talk different... a little tea. And uh, yeah, our listeners it. just found out that it's clearly a lucrative business. You don't, you know, chung bu pa, you're chung, chung no more. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So what would you like to know about the, yeah. What would you like to know about the tea? It's been a journey. So the, the two of us went to China around the same time and both fell in love with tea. I, um, I remember distinctly going to the tea section of uh, Beijing, which is called Malian Dao, which is what, what is what's the ma, ma? What's the ma? Is it horse ma? Malian Dao ma is horse and what Malian is like a horse lotus road or whatever. I looked into this, though, there's act, we don't want to get distracted on this podcast about it, but there's a fight about where those characters came from. Nobody is 100 percent sure. <clears throat> where the name Horse Lotus Road came from, but that's and that is one possible name <laughs> for the uh, for for what the tea market is called. And, but that's the that's the wholesale tea market in Beijing. It's like three kilometers long, shops on both sides of the of the street. Some of them are like malls, but like full of tea. And um, Tyler can attest. It's like I think it's the best place in Beijing that nobody knows about. Like. Like I just have had so much great times there, and like nobody who do, who doesn't know Beijing well would ever think to go there. Yeah, it was on. I'm with you. It, it was on my list that I would give out to people asking for recommendations, 
and it's not a common addition to your average uh, visit to Beijing, but it should because yeah. it is the scale, as you were just saying, is, is incredibly impressive. And I remember being in one of the warehouses with the tables and the chapons, mm -hmm. and my mother was over there because I was just starting my post my post undergrad job and she came out, we did a little tour of China and she said, you know, as my housewarming gift to you in your first post college apartment, I'm going to buy you a tea table. And I said, that's incredible. There we go. I, this is going to be the centerpiece of my apartment. And I don't know how long we spent or I spent perusing and assessing the, the different tables between the wood and the stone and the stones that are have shapes like well the one i ended up getting was a scroll a qianlong poem uh that it was a scroll nice. with a qianlong poem on top and but after some point my mother tapped me on the shoulder and said this is getting ridiculous you have to choose one of these tables and we need to go it's hard and yeah. it is hard it totally is so what um and i'm very happy with the with the chop pond that i i chose so excellent you still have it about tea i do big time for sure i have my tea there book you too, you which you've it. signed into nice um so what what is it about tea and what what is it that in in how how do chinese people engage engage with tea um in ways that we don't hear in the west oh i mean that's a big question it's uh so like tea for me was a couple things. In the very beginning, tea was a way to practice Chinese because I was living in China and I wanted to practice Chinese, but it turns out all the people my age wanted to speak English. And so it was actually surprisingly difficult to find a place in China where you just go and sit and talk. And that was like what you were there to do. And it turns out if you go to the wholesale tea market, there's 10,000 small tea shops and they all have a, a boss who just sits there all day and they just talk with anyone who comes in. You wanna talk about the tea, you do that, but you basically, you make like tea friends, child. You make these tea friends of people that you go to drink tea with. And, um, and it's a social thing. You can just go and sit and talk and they'll make you all this amazing tea. And once I started like going there more frequently, I started learning about the different types of teas and then it became um, almost like comedy. It's like one of those things. It's like a well that you never reach the bottom. Like you never like figure out comedy and you know how to do it and it's done. Similarly with tea, it's like there's so many things that go into it from, uh, you know, where the leaves are grown to how they were processed to, you know, how they were stored to how they were aged to how the, to, to the making of the tea. And do you use a lidded cup or do you use a pot or do you use a glass pitcher? Does it affect the flavor? Does it affect the experience? And that's the, I think the biggest difference between the Chinese tea, uh, like philosophy for, to use a big word and the Western one is that in China, tea is a social experience um, or a meditative experience um, if you're doing it by yourself. Whereas in America, it seems like caffeine is a drug and we take this drug because we have to get to work and I need my coffee. And it's just so completely different than the way that tea, which is like what monks drink to be able to concentrate and continue being monks professionally, um, is the same chemical that in America with a different social environment, we've turned into this drug essentially that every day we have to 
you know, give ourselves another hit or else we can't get through. And, um, and that really is the thing that when I came back here to America, I realized like, oh, all of, I mean, obviously the tea is good. I have really good tea. Um, I really think in my apartment, I have the best tea in the entire city of Los Angeles. And that includes all the fancy tea shops and all the restaurants and all the, the hotels and all the VIP lounges and stuff. I think I have literally the best tea. I can't imagine anyone would have anything better. But, um, but like beyond the pure quality of the leaf itself, the idea of why we should be drinking tea is I think very therapeutic to Americans. In the same way stand-up is needed in China where people need a way to speak out and to be able to share their opinions and to get over the fear of talking in public and to be able to think about what's going on in, the, in society. I think that's very therapeutic to Chinese people. I think Chinese tea is similarly therapeutic for Americans who are stressed, don't know how to talk to each other. In America, you can't just invite a friend over to talk. Half of this podcasting stuff is like, we just want to talk to each other, right? Like, and then that, like half of the podcasts, like we make them because they're fun and hopefully they're of service to people. But fundamentally, a lot of podcasters want to hang out with their friends and talk. But in America, you can't just invite somebody over to your house to talk. You got to be drinking, right? You got to have alcohol or something like that. You got to be at a bar. You got to go to a restaurant. But people don't necessarily want to drink alcohol or go to a restaurant. They want social life. And, um, and tea is kind of that in China where you have a guest over, you sit down at the tea table, which as you said, is the centerpiece of the room. We're not watching the TV. The TV is not the centerpiece of the room. The tea table is. And, um, and I think that that is a great lifestyle and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm actually very happy that I get to continue to live that lifestyle in America where it's like, you know, the rent is more expensive and it's harder to just like sit at home and drink tea. Um, you kind of got to do a lot of work to get there. <laughs> that last point you, uh, you, you highlighted there is, is so important. That is something that drew, drew me in the most. It was this, it was the ritual behind it that enabled the social interaction. I think that the, what for that, for me in high school, cause I went to a boarding school. Uh, unfortunately ended up being chewing tobacco. Chewing tobacco in boarding schools is a very big thing because it's one of the only things you can do and get away with or do that's illicit, if you will, and get away with. So we'd come back from football practice and we'd take out a tin of tobacco and we'd throw it in and, and you know, we'd spit in cups. And it was just a great way to be with your friends and to fill say to conversation the best conversations it was but there there has to be something but it's it's yeah, yeah there has to be something to do with your hands and mouth or else it's exactly. weird exactly you know exactly um it's it, but, it, 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 it so is like it is that yeah. that that for lack of better word the lube that generates the social interaction and uh rich rituals probably the better word i think it was it was a ritual and so I was not looking to do chewing tobacco for the rest of my life. And so when I got to China, I immediately, it just clicked. I was like, this is my ritual. This is how I will be able to decompress myself and then have friends over and say, hey, come over for tea. And for an American, as you've experienced, when you have Americans over, I imagine that they're just totally blown away with the novelty, right? With the water. Well, pump. I think that the novelty is, the novelty has, 
Yeah, novelty has been good because it draws people in, but then they see that there's a lot of depth underneath it. It is, it is a different sort of thing than, you know, Americans, there are some people now that like really care where their coffee comes from and they care what beans it is or what roast it is. Um, but fundamentally, a lot of people still like drink coffee in one hand while they're driving to work or they're like, you know, like, oh, I'm just so tired. I need the caffeine. And it's, um, it's, it's really not the same thing as the way that tea culture works in China. And as you said, it's, it's all about being social and it's, um, and like, you know, and I've gotten some very inspiring messages from some of the, uh, some, some of the, uh, the people who have been tea drinkers of mine. Um, one person, we get, we get a lot of this stuff, but we get a lot of people who are like, I'm an alcoholic. I need to be drinking something. I, and I don't want to hang out with all my other alcoholic friends because we just drink together, but I can have them over for tea. And like, you know, one guy was like, I made a decision. I'm going to bring this tea into my house and I'm not going to let alcohol into the house and like the tea, only tea in this house. And that gives you something that you can, again, make drink as much as you want is it's not going to be a problem for you. And it's a very, and it's a very mind clearing thing. Like, you know, again, monks drink tea to clear their mind. Um, so there were people like that. I had, um, we got letters from, um, from uh, veterans, uh, war veterans with PTSD. And they said that like, just, um, uh, just making the tea and doing the process of making the tea has been the only thing that's been able to calm their mind down and it de-stresses them. And they brought Gong Fu tea to the entire, you know, veterans group that they drink with and they're all drinking together and being social. Don't stay in your house alone and suffer. Invite your friends over for tea, bring the tea to them. It's, it's very, very healthy. Um, and so uh, we even had one, one person who was, I love this logic because they were said, they, they said that they found the thing actually because I was a comedian and then found my tea page. They were a comedian and they said that they had a, a cocaine problem and they were addicted to cocaine. And one day he was like about to buy cocaine. He occurred and he's like, it occurred to me if I have the money to buy cocaine, I have money to buy that tea set that I keep watching Jesse make his tea with. And so he decided to use his crack money to buy my tea set <laughs> and uh, I should catch up with him and see how that, that, that worked. But um, that, that made me very proud that I was able to make something that was um, interesting and intriguing enough that you'd be like, you know what? Not the cocaine. I want that. I want that gongfu tea. I want that. I want that gongfu cha. That's what I want. Um, so these are anecdotes. Most people, it's not as serious, but like a lot of people and they think you do, you know, when I'm selling tea, like I have, so I have the website. If anyone wants to go, they can check it out. jessiesteahouse.com. I make tons of internet videos um, on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, uh, where I usually one minute at a time share just something about the tea. What's this tea? What's that tea? Where was it grown? What's the difference between these two teas? How do you tell good tea from bad tea? These sorts of topics. Um, you know, paired with very simple videos of me making the tea. Um, it might look a little complicated at first if you don't know the Chinese tea making method and what the equipment is, but it's really just me drinking tea. And um, the community that's come together over it has been unbelievable. It's been a whole second career for give, me give, really here. Give us some numbers yeah. to quantify. Uh, we're not in China, so I'm not going to ask how much money yeah, you, yeah. you make. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but how many the, uh, good good choice yeah <laughs> how many views um, no the uh we get um for for followers um we have over 650,000 followers now across all the platforms close to 700,000 followers 
as far as I can tell, the half million followers that we have on TikTok, we are the biggest tea TikTok page that just does tea. Other people do like drinks or whatever, but like, you know, as far as for people just doing tea, I think we have the biggest TikTok account out there. I should say I, I built the, I built the TikTok. We have a small team. It's like four people or so, but I'm in the habit of usually attributing success to the group because for most things, it is a group thing for the, for the TikTok page. It really is all me. Um, and then, um, the, uh, and then, you know, we have, um, we have a subscriber program where we have, I think it's almost 500 people subscribed every quarter. They get new boxes of tea um, sent to them directly. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not massive, but it is real. And we built it all without ads. And we built it all by people really, by people coming back. And we have a really high returning customer rate. I think it's close to like 40% or something like that of people who buy come back. So um, it's a, uh, it's really a, it's it's been a, a really amazing thing because it's allowed me to continue to do the cultural exchange I like to do between China and the West, um, do it in a way that is um, profitable enough I can do it for a living, and also it is in a it's a mode of expression because I have complete control over that that account and so if I want to like tell some jokes while drinking the tea I tell some jokes while drinking the tea like you know I don't uh, I don't have to. Uh, I don't have to explain it to anybody. I don't have to uh, ask anyone's permission. And like, you know, and ironically that makes you better at the internet. Like just really being willing to, it's one thing to tell a joke to a couple of friends. It's another thing to tell a joke to people that paid money for tickets to you. It's another thing to tell a joke to a whole bunch of strangers when your livelihood depends on them liking you to buy your stuff. So it's actually not like, uh, there's a reason why brands don't do the internet well is because they're like, we have all these followers and we're really gonna post that. You know, um, but the answer is, yeah, <laughs> you should. <laughs> so it's, and, um, and, yeah, it's been and, and it enables you to stay in touch with your Chayo, your tea friends. I am starting a podcast. I'm starting a podcast that hasn't even started yet, but I'm already pushing it on your podcast. It doesn't get any more podcasts than that. Um, but I think that's the next step is um, I think I'm going to start a, a podcast and a YouTube talk show where I have tea friends over from different fields. We drink tea and we talk. And um, like, you know, you know this as well as I do, you have really interesting conversations over tea. Uh, so I think that the, the core of something really fun is right there. And like, again, why do I do the tea? It's to, to be with people and to have friends over. And like, you know, a day that I spent drinking tea with friends and talking never feels wasted. Um, it feels great. And so if I can make a living doing that, you know, that'd be, that'd be a good way to make a living. Also, you come up with jokes. Sometimes in the course of conversation, you come up with jokes and you write them down and now you got jokes. So um, it really is a, it's a, yeah, tea has been a fantastic thing. I encourage anybody who's even the least bit interested in, in tea to give it a try and, um, and try out some of the tea or a tea set from my website. <laughs> well, you, you, uh, you mentioned that you uh, successfully or hopefully successfully got someone who was doing drugs off of drugs and into tea. Yeah. What would you, with that line of thinking, what, what is a, um, what is the gate best gateway tea? The gateway tea. I recommend for people that have no prior tea experience, I either recommend red tea or green tea. Red tea is what the Chinese call, what the Chinese call red tea and what I call red tea in the West, we call black tea. So if you're thinking of like an Earl Grey and English breakfast, these sorts of tea blends, um, red tea is the base of that. So 
um, T-Men Red Tea, which I seem to remember you gave me a bag of once, which I've long since finished. Um, uh, and uh, T-Men Red Tea is a good red tea to start. I have an Ancient Tree Red Tea that's coming out in on August 1st. Ancient Tree Red Tea from Yunnan. The type of leaves they usually turn into puar, these are red tea. Um, and it's dark and chocolatey and just really good tea. Um, and then green tea, if you like lighter flavors, green tea is like very fresh, very light, easy drinking. Um, especially if you get good green tea, like the stuff on my website, it's not bitter. A lot of Americans think tea is bitter because they've only ever had horrible tea. It's like people who have never had like, it's like, you know, imagine like Chinese people, they're like pizza sucks because it tastes like ketchup. And then it turns out that they were putting ketchup instead of tomato sauce. You have to drink, you have to eat the real pizza. You can't judge pizza because you had like bad pizza in a random third tier city in China. And then if Chinese people said, I don't like pizza, they'd be wrong. You might like pizza. You've just never had good pizza. Similarly, it's it's hard to wrap our head around as Americans, but America is like such a joke of the world from the tea market perspective. Like literally the worst tea in the world gets sold here for a lot of money to from these big corporations. And like, it's just a, it's just a total joke. It's hard to think of Americans being so far behind on something that has to do with consumerism, but uh, but we are. And so, um, you know, it's, but it's hard to get people to wrap their heads around like the, the thing that you think is tea is not even tea. You know, once you have full leaves, like you have loose full leaf tea, then we can start talking about which is better. But until we're still in this like ground up powder in a bag stuff that's meant to be mixed with milk and sugar because it has no flavor on its own other than bitter, like that's uh, we got to, you know, miss me with that shit. You know what I mean? That's what, that's, yeah. I should put that on a shirt, just like a tea bag, and it just says, miss me with that shit. <laughs> that's a good idea. I'm writing it down. <laughs> so you hit it with some, with some gateway. Yeah, red gateway tea and green teas. tea. Also, white tea. What's the deal with white pool? What's for the deal for new tea people? White tea, yeah. So a little yeah. by chop. What's the deal with pool? So pool tea is, um, so what, what, the, what the Chinese call what the Chinese, what we call black tea, the Chinese call red tea. What the Chinese call black tea is puar, is a type of black tea. So puar is kind of like champagne or one of these things where like it's only puar if it comes from, I think there's three states in the in the province of Yunnan that you can do, puar county, uh, puar county uh, Sichuan Bana, and I think there's one more like Lintang, I don't know if it's its own thing, but it comes from the border border of China and in the province of Yunnan, way deep in the tropical forest, there's there's like elephants. Uh, it's you know the place that I was a month ago sourcing new tea. Um, you know I was in uh, Menghai and um, and uh, like you know we like the uh, these places are like half an hour from the border of Myanmar and Laos and Cambodia, like way down there. Um, the tea from this part of the country is picked. And um, if you follow these steps, you, it becomes pu'er tea. So the steps are pick the leaves, you wither the leaves so they just stay out in the sun and kind of uh, start to sun dry. After a day of withering, you have a big walk with like, a, it's like a flame powered walk, like a giant walk. And you, you smush the leaves against the hot walk and it fixes the leaves. It actually it breaks the cell walls and then seals the, the good stuff inside of the tea with the heat. Um, then those cooked leaves or whatever you want to call it are then laid out to sun dry. Um, and then once they're dried, they are puar tea. Uh, that's what they call sheng puar, raw puar. 
Um, alternatively, you can take the withered leaves, treat them, fix them, and then instead of sun drying them, they have a second mode of making puar that they invented in the 1970s or 80s, I want to say. I think it's the 80s. Not much was being invented in the 70s in China. Yeah, uh, yeah. It is recent. Yeah. So then this is how you make show puar or cooked puar tea. Um, so the what you do is you take the leaves, but instead of sun drying them at the end, you put them in a giant pile and you spray the pile with water. And what happens is the leaves start to ferment at the bottom of the pile and get really hot. And then you pull the you you uh, you uh, you toss the pile every now and then to mix up the leaves and get more oxygen into the pile. And it's a very difficult process because if you mess it up, the whole you've just made rotten leaves and, and that's not tasty. But if you do it correctly, what it does is it rapidly ferments and oxidizes the tea um, in a way that makes this really, really dark, rich, earthy, uh, musky, what they call cooked puar tea or show puar tea. And um, those two types of puar are both aged. So you can have a young sheng tea and a young shou tea, or you can have an aged sheng tea and an aged shou tea. And um, again, in America, people don't really care, but in China, where you age them, what, you know, like, you know, how, what the humidity was, like they really care in the same way, like the high class wineries or vineyards in France care about every step of what happens from the time that grape is a seed to the time it's in the bottle. And so that's um, one of the reasons why, like, you know, like I think tea has such a great future in America is like, it's like, you know, the French people were doing wine because they loved it. And then other people realized wine is good. And then all that work just has a new market. So like the tea in America, the tea in China is so much better than the tea in, in America. And because all of that work was going in, whether Americans buy it or not, and some of that stuff Americans may not care about. Like, do they really care about whether it's from this specific tree on Laobanjiang Mountain? Probably not. But all of that work that went into the Chinese market is still there. So it turns out for me as a tea buyer, you know, I can't just randomly pick teas, but I'm tripping over teas that are better than anything in the American market. And like, you know, the, the, the difficult part is how to have a good enough relationship with the tea farmer that you can get the good tea at a price Americans will actually pay because the Chinese really like their tea. So they, they, they build the price up and the price can get really high, not because there's an international market, just because so many Chinese people want it. And I have to go and tell the tea farmers, I know you could probably get more for it if you waited, but I'm here now and you're helping to start tea in America and I, I can't pay any more than this. What do you have for that? Um, and then if you have good relationships, the stuff they give you at that price is also really good. But as I said, you'd have to be like, they'd have to be trying to mess with you to give you tea of the quality that's normally sold in America. If you have good relationships with your tea farmers, you're gonna get stuff that's superior to, to what you have in the US market. And that's just the pure quality that's going into none of all of the other mental and spiritual and, and physical uh, benefits of tea. That's like just pure tea quality. So it's really a whole deep well. And it's, um, it's been a lot of fun to, to swim in it for a bit. <laughs> let's say, let's say somebody wanted to get uh, some really good tea. Where would they go, Tyler? And how, what code would they put into the, uh, to the window to get 10% off? <laughs> If you put search for DOS at checkout, you will get 10% off. Now, 
I, I want to bring this home with some quick fire questions here. The, 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 the first is favorite Western comedian. Favorite Western comedian. Oh, there's so many good ones. You know, it's kind of going to be a weird choice, but I'm still going with Mitch Hedberg. I just love Mitch Hedberg. He's like not my style. Like he's not the style of my comedy at all, but I just love watching Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> Did I tell you, you can actually look on this on YouTube. You can see an old video of me from 2013 doing Mitch Hedberg jokes in Chinese and um, they actually work. <laughs> it's like, it's pretty crazy. Also, I was much less good of a performer then. So the fact that they still work then is kind of interesting. Um, yeah, but that's, uh, that's a, um, I occasionally, I, I, do, I do shows at colleges. And one of the things that I would do sometimes is I would show clips of me doing Chinese comedy because not everybody speaks Chinese. But if you have a video of the thing, you can put subtitles and everybody can enjoy it. So sometimes I would show clips and one of the clips I showed was this doing Mitch Hedberg jokes in Chinese, which is, you know, again, your, your listeners are like, who's Mitch Hedberg? You got to look up Mitch Hedberg. It's the best. If you could only take one word over from Chinese into English and it kind of like how we use Yiddish words just interchangeably in English now, what would be that first Chinese word you'd bring over? It's got to be mafan. It's got to be mafan. Because it's like the, it's like, you know, troublesome, like in English, you're like, oh, this is so troublesome. Like, what are you, some 18th century Lord? But like, no, that's what it is. It's just like, oh, this is so mafan. Just like, I don't want to deal with that. There's a lot of, also, it's like, it's a noun. It's a, it's like, you know, it's everything. It's an adjective. It's noun. It's like, oh, there's a lot of mafan. This is going to be so much mafan. I just can't deal with it. That, um, that, that definitely would be my choice. Um, that, that, that makes me happy because that is. That's top of my list as yeah. well. Your your list obviously could be longer, given you know more Chinese words. What's, than what's me. yours? But for it, but Mafan's one. It is because it, we really don't have that word in yeah. English right now. Because as you said, troublesome is not in our lexicon. It doesn't work. It's not a word we use. It's just Mafan. It's just like oh, there's got to deal with that. You know, oh God, you know that's. Uh, that mafan is there. It's a real thing. Hashtag real mafan. Oh, hopefully this, this podcast is a meaningful sea change in, uh, in bringing mafan into the English lexicon. It is. Yeah, well, well, when it happens, we knew that it started here. We have evidence. We have video evidence. It, it, you're right. <laughs> and we'll look at the, who was the Google engram showing the uh, uptick. July 24th, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2023, it will start. The hockey stick will start here. If you could only want, drink one type of tea the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, this is a hard question to answer. Probably, the, the real answer is probably ancient tree red tea. That would be, it's just, it's it's the best. It's like the the uh, the the iconic tea but better okay you're given an opportunity to perform stand-up in front of one famous american and one famous chinese person and the jokes you could do no one has to approve the jokes you got the go-ahead who are those two people who do i want to do jokes for that's a great question you know, props to having an interview question that I have not hit in 13 years of doing interviews about Chinese comedy. Um, 
Mm. Uh, that's a really good question. Who would I want to do jokes for in? This is a really good question. So for America, let's just make this easy. I don't want to be here all day. For jokes I'd like to do, you know, it kind of sounds like a cop-out because it's like totally doable, but like my dad. I don't think I've ever done like a show that my dad can actually listen to. Um, so like, I'm going to do my dad, but then the question, are, is this like the same show? Like there's two audience members and they're sitting next to each other? Yes, um, yes. Okay. You know, then I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I'm gonna go big. I'm gonna swing big, and I'm gonna go Xi Jinping, because I want I want Xi Jinping to sit next to my dad and listen to these jokes I do, and have a realization that stand-up comedy is a healthy thing for him and his people, and allow us all to just do our jobs again. Because um, I don't know anything else that's gonna change what's going forward. So like you know, I feel like I have to use that shot if I got it. And and I will say this is not without precedent. Because in the Qing Dynasty, Qiong Bupa, the first Yangsheng performer, was doing jokes on the street, and the Empress Dowager Cixi heard that there was this really funny guy in Tiantiao that was doing these jokes, and said, "Bring him to me." And he was brought to the Forbidden City and did a one-person monologue for the Empress Dowager for two hours that cracked everybody up, and she loved it. And after that, everybody knew that Xiangsheng was approved of by the emperor and the royal court. And it allowed the creation of a very unique art form, which was both high culture and low culture. So you could have dirty jokes, but you could do them in the forbidden city in the emperor's palace. And the fact that everybody knew that the emperor was supportive of it led to the first flowering of, of Xiangsheng. So if I could pull that off and I could make Xi Jinping laugh, it would be history repeating itself that now he would see that stand-up is a great thing and he shouldn't try to squash it just because it's inconvenient for him. Um, so that is a story. <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna make that happen. That vision will become a, a reality. Now give all right, we're gonna test out my Chinese here or my translation yeah, interpretation, uh, ability to interpret. Yeah. So give give a one or two joke um, or one or two sentence joke and I will translate it for the audience. Okay. All right. Here's the, here's the, here's the joke. Um, see if you translate a little bit. So it's like, you know, do you want me to like give, let you do one line at a time or how do you want? Uh, I'll, I'll do it just, yeah. Yeah. So right now you're looking to find. You, you try. So yeah. Well, I, Right now, I'm I'm looking to find a new home. Yeah. I have a good Chinese friend who said, I'll give you a suggestion. Yang 
花，正是四十步解之花，八节长春之草。正房五剑为上，前出廊，后出厦，东西厢房，东西背房，东西耳房，东块院是厨房，西块院是茅房。到座书房五剑为待客厅，闽宅和宴的窗户可扇的大玻璃，下金间是女婿的帘子，东金间是子口的房门。往屋里一看，真是花露天气，别有洞天。影面摆一个丈八条案，上面有尊窑品、浪窑的盖碗，还有一木八仙桌，一扁一把花里太师椅，桌上有文房四宝，纸笔墨砚、宣纸端砚、胡笔灰墨，通见天文地理，欧流眼罩，名人的字帖，墙上还挂着许多名人的字画，有唐伯虎的美人、米永贞的商船、柳山的扇面、铁宝的对子、板桥的主子、松中堂一笔虎字，有青龙的闹龙金匾、道光青瓷这扎的镇宅宝剑、绿纱玉皮轿、金狮剑、金瓶口还挂着黄绒丝绦，有一张儿的穿衣镜，一张儿的假鸡案，五尺多高的半叶盒，扇后的盘锦，碧玺的酒桶，粉墨桶的金装翡翠的玉器，有座中挂着的戴克章。纸表、纸表、寒暑表。I I so wish this, <笑> I, I so wish this podcast had had、uh, visuals. Our our,、uh, our listeners could could have because my guess is at this point most people are probably like, what happened? Like, did did it just kind of like the audio? <laughs> yeah, a stroke. Kind of, did, did it just? <laughs> <laughs> like about five seconds. Speaking in tongues. It, it, about five seconds into that, I was I I was preparing for waltz. Right after you, you finished that, but you went you went so long that I could no <laughs> longer.、So、and for long. our listen for our listeners, waltz hall is like what the fuck.、Um, yeah. Because obviously,、fuck. after the third、fuck. word of that last segment, <laughs> I I got nothing.、Um, <laughs> Uh, well done. I asked that piece because I actually need a translation. I'd love to post a live of me performing that bit, and it's hard to translate. It's um, it's basically it's a that is a, a traditional a traditional Chinese comedy piece describing a very fancy courtyard and、uh, what the courtyards are. So like, 门口有四棵门槐 There's four. Huai, which is like a willow type tree, you know. Yeah, 门口有四棵门槐，有上马石像。Just so everyone knows, he's not. He's he's not. He's not actually. No, I'm not going to do the whole thing. But like you know, it's a, there are trees, and then there's a stone to tie your horse to, and then an awning, and then there's a bench for people to sit on, and an electric light, and inside you enter the first courtyard, and you see the calligraphy on the wall, and then there's a blah blah blah, and then it just keeps going through the house, and um and so. It's um,、uh, but like as far as I know, no one's ever translated that bit, and it's actually annoying because I'd love to post it. I just literally I would need to do the subtitles, and the subtitles have been so hard that I just have not. <laughs> I just like yeah, I don't even know how to translate some of it. I know what it all means, but it's hard to translate. <laughs> well, if you throw this on your TikTok, you've got the opportunity. Jesse, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Search for Das. Your life has been just a. Incredible journey, disciples, tea farmer friends, looking to perform stand up for your dad and Xi Jinping in the room to you know transform the history of、uh, our our world.、Um, you're a good friend, and I really hope that we're drinking tea together sometime soon. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. You have AC in Miami, right? We can drink tea in Miami.、Um, You know that would be that would be great. I'll I'll let you know if I'm in Florida, and again, let me know if you're in LA. You're always welcome here. I have a I have a deluxe air mattress. That's what I was told. It was deluxe. It's really good. You're always welcome. So sounds good. Awesome. Have a great time, guys, and thank you. Of course,、yeah. that and a cup of pu'ar is a <laughs>、yeah. great way to、uh, you know finish the night. So 
Thank you, Jesse. And uh, search for DOS at checkout.